Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share what they have been working on. I'm Angie, and this week I am excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Michael Frank. Mike is a professor here at Stanford Psychology Department. He studies how people learn to communicate with language. And in this episode, Mike will share with us his newest book on early language acquisition. We will also talk about the data-driven approach in psychology and how his research has brought insights on his own parenting journey. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We'll be talking about your new book that recently came out about MIT Press called Variability and Consistency in Early Language Learning, the Warband Project. So Mike, do you want to start by talking about what this book is about? Sure. Well, this book is a bunch of different things. The first thing it is, is kind of a deep dive into a particular type of data, which is uh, CDI data. And I'll explain what that is in a second. Um, the second thing it is, is my attempt to synthesize a lot of different theories about early language learning that I had been grappling with over the past 10 or 15 years. And the third thing is, is, is a kind of replication effort where we tried to take a lot of different analyses that had been done using early language data and replicate them on the same sample of data from kids learning lots of different languages. So the main topic of the book is the CDI, which is the MacArthur Bates Communicative Development Inventory. And the CDI is a checklist where parents say which words their children say or sometimes say and understand. The unique thing about the CDI is that it's very long. So when you assess kids using the CDI, you get like 600 data points about which words they say or understand. And the CDI, because it's a questionnaire, is very cheap to administer. And so it's been given to kids all over the world. And uh, often the samples of kids that have been uh, given the CDI are in the thousands, sometimes uh, even the tens of thousands for big twin studies. So we have really big, naturally occurring, in quote marks, data sets that we can analyze. The book was an attempt to put all those together and replicate analyses on those data, do a deep dive into them and really try to uh, explore the space of language acquisition theories on this big CDI data set. Wait, just to give the audience some more background. So who are the people using CDIs? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the CDI was developed both for researchers and for clinicians. So if you're a researcher and you're looking at kids, say, under three years old, and you want to say something about their language, there's this big question, how do you learn about their language ability? Now, it would seem natural from some perspectives to give them some kind of test. The problem is if you've hung out with a two-year-old or one-year-old, you know that that doesn't really work. You can't say, hey, kids, you know these words because they'll cry and run away or they'll need a snack or a nap or something like this most of the time. So direct assessment is very expensive and time-consuming, and you don't get a lot of answers from them. Now, some people have made a career out of direct assessment of really little kids, and you can measure certain aspects of their language really carefully if you bring them into the lab and do a controlled procedure but you don't get a global snapshot of what their language is like. So the CDI is another way of doing that. Basically, you ask an expert about their language, and that expert happens to be their parent who spends a lot of time with them. And so the parent then can tell you about their language and uh, whether they're saying particular words, whether they're combining words, whether they're gesturing, and so forth. And so these, these assessments turn out to be really useful for research 
and they also turn out to be a good first step for clinical screening. So if you want to know if a child has a language delay, you can give a CDI to the parent, figure out what the child's percentile is on the CDI, because when you've got a big data set, you can look up where a particular administration or a particular child falls in the norms, the broader distribution. And then if they fall below a particular level, you can then refer that family for further assessment for speech therapy and so forth. So it's not a diagnostic tool, but it can be used as a screening tool. So can you unpack a little bit what's the differences between a diagnostic tool and a screening tool? Sure. I, so a screening tool is a quick way of figuring out if somebody is eligible for the next step. It should meet with a clinician or talk to a pediatrician or go to a speech therapist. Basically, it's a starting point. And for a lot of developmental disorders, we use screeners as quick questionnaires to figure out whether kids should be referred. But then to actually give a diagnosis to formally say your child has a developmental language disorder, something like this, you want to do a much more thorough assessment. You want to look at their hearing. You want to look at their production abilities as relates to their comprehension. You want to uh, assess their grammar and their receptive and expressive language. Uh, so you really want to do a much broader assessment and really make sure you understand where you think the locus of impairment is. The CDI doesn't tell you that really. It's just a, a quick way of finding out where somebody's holistic language ability sits in the overall de- uh, distribution. I see. I see. So basically, CDI is a questionnaire that researchers and clinicians will give to parents, and parents will basically just do check marks on, "Oh, my kid knows this word. My kid doesn't know this word." And based on this like score, the either the researchers and clinicians will get a grasp about like in general how the kid's language has been developed. Exactly. I see. I see. So your book is a deep dive in a lot of CDI data. That's right. So the subtitle of the book is the Word Bank Project. And WordBank is a website that we made, wordbank.stanford.edu. That's a database of lots and lots of CDI data that we gathered from parents and, uh, and clinicians and researchers all over the world. And so, as we started to explore those data, we realized, wow, there's just a ton of stuff that we could do with them. And what we really want to do is standardize those analyses and carry them out in the same way across all of the data, and really thoroughly explore the space of possible analyses. And so that's what the book grew out of. How much data did you get from this for this World Bank project? It's about seventy-five thousand kids worth, and some of those kids have extra administrations, so it's a bit more than eighty thousand CDIs. And each CDI is somewhere around five or six hundred words checked or unchecked. Actually, maybe a bit more than that because there are items about grammar and gestures and word combination and so forth. So it ends up being、uh, millions of data points. Well, that's a lot. So wait, if I understand correctly, isn't CDI like a questionnaire? It's like paper and pen thing. How did they end up on the web? By hook or by crook. So some of these were given on the web. Some research groups had already translated the CDI to the web. In other cases, people actually went and retyped old CDIs into digital format. So a lot of our work was actually reaching out to folks who had. Done normative studies of CDIs in other countries or in other cultures or languages, and getting their data from them. So, for example, if you were in Australia and you wanted to set up a norm for Australian English, you would develop an Australian English adaptation of the CDI, give it to tons of people, then arrange those data by the age of the child, 
and figure out what the percentiles were on those data. And in order to do that, you need the item by child data, we call them. That is an individual data point for each word for each child. And so that's the big data set that we then put into WordBank as the Australian English data. I see. Well, that sounds like a lot of work. How long was this like whole process has been? Gosh, we started the WordBank project probably in 2014. I think I pitched it to the MacArthur CDI board in winter of 2014. And the book just came out earlier this week. So <laughs> wow, timely. <laughs> Well, just for the context, uh, today is uh, 2021, March 18th. So it's 2021 March. Yeah, well, that's a long time. So throughout this, I know, Mike, you are an expert in child language acquisition. I'm wondering if through the process of writing this book, are there things that you found surprising by doing this kind of large scale, like big data analysis? What are the most surprising thing you have learned from writing this book? I think my favorite finding that comes out of the book is one that is very obvious once you think about it, but that I had never thought about. So I started out in my systematic exploration of the data, looking at the central tendency of the data across languages. How many words does a kid at 18 months know? How many words does a kid at 24 months know? And from that viewpoint, you see a lot of consistency across languages. You see that in general, you know, 18 month olds are above 50 words of vocabulary, 24 months, it's starting to really explode and they're getting up in the 150 or more words range. But if you plot the data differently and you plot the distribution of kids, all of a sudden it looks like a big mess. Kids are all over the place. And I had seen that picture for American English, but I started to plot it for all of the different languages we have. And we have 28 or 29 languages or dialects at the moment in WordBank. And when I looked at it, I realized, wow, kids are all over the place in every single language. And I started to compute statistics about their distribution, their variability. And it turned out that the level of variability for your average two-year-old itself was very consistent. That is, <laughs> kids were all over the place to the same degree the world around. And that felt like a real discovery that the variability isn't unique to say the American context because you know the United States is a very diverse broad place and kids grow up with very different experiences. So maybe you would say, hey, look, there's gonna be a lot of variability in US kids language. But if you look at kids just learning Beijing Mandarin in Beijing, they're all first kids, they're all uh, going to relatively similar preschools, you see the exact same degree of variability. They're still all over the place. What it suggests is that that variability is part and parcel of the language acquisition problem. And I thought that was kind of mind blowing. And that led to the title of the book, actually, Variability and Consistency. The idea is looking at this trade off between things that are different across individuals and across languages versus those things that are consistent and might be candidates for universals. Oh, that's really cool. Do you have any speculations on why this might be the case? Honestly, I don't think there's one source of that variability. It probably comes from lots and lots of different things. Some of it may be pure speech motor variability, that some kids practice talking a lot more and others practice it a lot less. So for example, my son Jonah uh, is delayed in his productive language, but is just fine on receptive. He just didn't babble that much as a kid. And that's known to uh, be an early indicator of delay in productive language. So I think that kind of speech motor variability is one source. There's also variability in input in the home. So some kids learn 
slower perhaps because they get fewer instances of individual words. There's also likely genetic variation in the amount kids want to talk. There's also probably variation both genetic and socialized in the amount that kids are attuned to other people and want to communicate irrespective of language and language ability. So I think there's lots and lots of sources for this kind of variation. It's probably not one single thing. Parceling that out is, of course, a huge research challenge. I see, I see. That's really, really cool. I'm wondering, do you, do you know if there are like other researchers who have done like similar analysis for other domains, like such as non-linguistic? I don't know. Like you mentioned motor. Is there a way to measure motor variabilities in early childhood? Yeah, I tried to compare motor variability to speech variability in one of the chapters of the book where we were looking at this stuff. And, you know, when you start looking at big global measures of kids' development, you start getting out of the realm where I grew up, which is like small, tightly targeted studies of cognitive development. Mm -hmm. And you end up much more in like big government studies of their whole population. So I started looking at Scandinavian birth uh, cohort studies and so forth, things like this. And there you do get some estimates of variability in motor milestones. And what you see is language is more variable than motor development. So, you know, kids basically learn to walk around their first birthday. Uh, 12 months is really a pretty common time. And sometimes it's 11 and sometimes it's 13. Kids hit the 50 word milestone right around 18 months, mostly. But for that, it's much more like, hey, some kids hit it around 14 months and some kids don't hit it until 22, 23, 24 months. So the variability is just objectively bigger than motor milestones, even as a percentage of age. I see. I see. You do mention that um, for those like motor motor studies, you were looking at those large scale like cohort study by Scandinavian government. How were those studies administered and what are some measurements that they were using? Much of this is done with standardized instruments. So the Bailey is a kind of classic standardized instrument, Bailey Scales of Infant Development. It's a, an inventory of behaviors for particular ages that uh, you look for. That's one way to do it. Another is through parent report questionnaires like the CDI, like the Ages and Stages questionnaire. These have a variety of clinical uses. They're used as outcome measures in large-scale intervention studies, uh, for cross-national comparisons by agencies like UNESCO and so forth. So there, uh, there certainly are standardized measures for this kind of thing, but they're somewhat different than the kinds of measures that we typically interact with in cognitive development research. Cool. So um, let's change gear a little bit. So I know in the introductions that on MIT's website for this book, the first sentence, the first word that pops up to me is this idea of data-driven. And I also know that you mentioned data-driven in a lot of occasions, in a lot of contexts. So I'm wondering if you could unpack this term a little bit, because I mean, in some sense, I feel like all scientists across domains, across all different researchers, they all reason with data. They think about data, they work with empirical data. So maybe I'm understanding this concept wrong, but I'm wondering if you can say more about like what are what is the, like, the specialness or like, the uniqueness of this data-driven approach? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess one way of thinking about it is you could think about some research as hypothesis-driven, and then you use the data to explore the hypotheses or to evaluate the hypotheses. Another kind of research is more data-driven in the sense that you're exploring different ways of looking at the data 
and trying to see if theories emerge from the statistical analysis. So the World Bank project certainly has been that second kind of more exploratory work, which is interesting for me because much of what I do has more of a confirmatory feel. We do a lot of pre-registration in the lab. We really try to test theoretical hypotheses. This, in contrast, maybe I use this uh, term data-driven to describe this body of work because it feels so different to just be poking around and trying to figure out what the most salient patterns are. Now, that, that's not to say that there's no theory driving this exploration. Often there is a pretty deep body of theory driving it, but it doesn't tell us exactly what we're looking for in a quantitative sense. It tells us more that there might be some kind of qualitative effects which we can then try to quantify. So just to give a kind of geeky flavor for what data-driven means here, if you think about the World Bank data, in some sense it's just one big matrix with the columns being individual words and the rows being individual children. And then you've got a one or a zero in each cell of that matrix that indicates whether the child says the word or doesn't say the word. And then you can actually look at the analyses in our book as different views of that matrix. You can average across words, and then you are looking at the central tendency of kids' vocabulary. You can average across columns, sorry, you can average across uh, kids, uh, rows, and then you're looking at the central tendency for each word, and that's a kind of analysis that we do. Or you can average across classes of words uh, and look at kids' vocabulary as to whether they're biased towards nouns or verbs or function words. That's something that we do. Or semantic categories like animal sounds or places or people. Uh, or you can even look at which words are easier or harder to learn across languages. You can look at classes of people like uh, you could break down by maternal education or the sex of the child or the birth order of the child. Uh, and so you can see how this is uh, fundamentally all just operations on this same data set, looking at the different groupings of the rows and the columns and how they interact in predicting the contents, that is, which words are known. So that's a kind of geeky matrix-driven view of it. But really what we're doing is we're trying to wring all of the signal out of this really complex, rich data set that we were lucky enough to have access to. So is there an example that you can give on in terms of the hypothesis-driven study? We'll say that most of the, I don't know, like in lab, the classic cognitive development study are more of this hypothesis-driven flavors. Or actually another way to ask, is there a really like a dichotomy in the field about like what's the better approach on this? Yeah, I love this quote from Roger Brown, which I'm going to sure, but he says something like, and this is Roger Brown, he's one of the pioneers of child language studies at Harvard back in the 60s and 70s. He says something like, experimentalists have a distaste for the messiness of observational data from the real world. And observationalists think that the experimentalists have it all, all boiled down to two tiny little variables. And obviously, neither one of them is right. Uh, both approaches have something to offer. And by putting them in conjunction, the truth sometimes emerges. And that's really the way I think about it. I mean, if you want an example of the hypothesis-driven type of research, here's one from Child Language. Uh, my colleague Ellen Markman, who's also in, in Stanford Psych, pioneered the mutual exclusivity paradigm. So you show kids uh, a ball and then an unknown object, and you say, hey, can you give me the DAX? That's a word they've never heard before. And they point to the, uh, the unknown object. So there's this mapping that they seem to be doing between the unknown object and the unknown word. And 
that might be an interesting way that they can use the language they know to learn more new language. So this is a very well-established phenomenon since Ellen did her original studies. There have been many different replications of it. A student in the program recently even did a meta-analysis of that phenomenon. And when you do these small studies, you're assigning kids to two groups or sometimes uh, doing you know, within subjects design where you uh, do different trials from two different conditions and you're comparing performance between them. So you've got some hypothesis that performance will differ or not differ between two conditions. And that helps you evaluate this hypothesis that motivated you to set up the experiment. And the ultimate goal there is often to tell a story about what mechanism it is that children used in this particular situation to figure out what was going on. And you're testing that hypothesis in kind of a fairly standard, uh, people call it hypothetical deductive way, where you're, you're hypothesizing something and then you're trying to confirm it or disconfirm it, um, or maybe make a quantitative model of it in a more sophisticated world. In contrast, when you've got data like the CDI, it seems like you've got a global picture of all of the language that's accreted over these millions of interactions that the kids have gone through over the past two or three years of their life. And so you don't have a clear view of a single mechanism. You're not testing a single hypothesis. Instead, you're measuring their language with a fairly reliable and valid tool. And then you can poke around the margins of that, looking at the variability across words across kids for signatures that are more or less compatible with different mechanisms. So you're working backwards to induce or maybe abduce the possible mechanisms that could have given rise to this pattern of data rather than testing a particular uh, specific hypothesis about one particular targeted mechanism. So those are two very big extremes, but certainly a, an interesting question um, whether you can get them to meet in the middle a little bit. I think some of our projects do that there where there's some hypothesis testing and then some exploration because the data are rich enough to afford a bit more uh, of a detailed look. Yeah, that's actually what I was about to ask because I feel like it sounds like the best way is to have some from both ends of the spectrum. So can you tell us more about like what are some good examples of trying to marrying these two approaches together? I guess I think that this is just starting to be done in language acquisition. A place where it's been done much more effectively, in my mind, is in the domain of vision science, right? So there you've got um, big computational models often trained on big naturalistic or at least large and diverse sets of objects. And you can look at the properties of these models and you can think about how they might line up with the properties of the neural system that primates have for processing the same kinds of data. And so those are kind of big correlational studies and they've been very exciting in some cases where you look at the properties of sparse coding and neurons or the kinds of representations that the neurons have versus the kinds of representations that the networks uh, or, or other models have. And then you can do small scale targeted tests where you probe particular aspects of the representation experimentally, or even by training humans or other primates to do particular tasks and looking at the representations neurally or via careful behavioral probes. So in some fields, it feels very natural to do this kind of flip back and forth because there are strong theoretical models and they make predictions both about big messy data sets and about tight experiments. 
in child language, I think it's for me been kind of a discovery that there's a disconnect between these two different spheres. So for example, the policy conversation in child language has been all about the role of parents and parent input. And it took me a couple of years of appreciating that conversation and being interested in that conversation to realize, hey, they never once mentioned mutual exclusivity. They never once mentioned, you know, uh, my model from my dissertation where I had a computational model of social word learning or, you know, the neural network model that was competing with my model. Like nobody ever cared about those theoretical details in the big policy conversation. And so in some sense, we had failed a little bit to make contact between the small and the big. And so my interest in the word bank project in part is to try to make those connections between the very little and the very big. And it, it's not trivial and it often requires a bit more of a computational theory of the learning enterprise than we'd had. But that's the goal of the whole thing. And that's what, what, what the word bank data really inspired me to, to think about. Since you mentioned this kind of uh, policy making, we are already in this kind of real world realm. I'm wondering if you can share something about like when you're writing this book, have you learned something that's are benefiting like your own parenting practices? Well, that variability finding, I think benefited my parenting practices because I realized that I could relax a little bit, that kids were variable. No matter what you did, there was going to be some variation. And that for me was actually very liberating. That, you know, if you listen very carefully to this policy discussion, you could actually come out believing that every word you say matters and you have to be talking to your kid at all times. I think that's a complicated generalization, one that puts a lot of pressure on parents and not rightfully so, because actually parent input does relate to variation in kids' language, but it's not the sole driver of it. So now uh, I guess maybe we can wrap up this conversation a little bit by talking about what are some next steps, because I know you mentioned this project you have been working on for the last, from now, like seven years. So what are some like future directions you are thinking about to bring this project forward? Well, this data-driven moniker actually inspired a lot of other projects because I realized that I could start looking at other domains of cognitive development where we've typically looked at small-scale studies through this larger-scale observational lens and try to make these links. So a couple of projects that I'm particularly excited about that we've been working on relate to using the same approach in different domains. The first of those is on children's drawing. So we gathered a large data set of kids' drawings from a children's museum and are doing some exploration of what is variable and what is consistent, what's changing with development and why in that data set. And that's been really fun because I've gotten to learn about children's art, which I, I love. If you don't mind me asking, what's special about children's drawing? Like, they're cute, and but like, why children's drawing? Well, I think people for a long time have thought that children's drawing could be a window into children's mental representations in Typical developmental tasks, we ask children to give us one bit of information by choosing between this puppet and that puppet or something like that. A drawing gives you much, much richer information, albeit filtered through the lens of children's immature motor abilities and limited practice. But the idea behind this data set and this study, which is led by Bria Long, is that we can try to look at how children's visual concepts change over development by looking at both their production of and recognition of uh, drawings. And so we can get a window into how they see the world in some sense. I see. Sorry, I think I interrupted you there. I think you're about to give another examples of the future direction of World Bank book. 
Oh, the other one is, is also looking at what you were talking about earlier, actually, motor milestones and broader developmental milestones. So we started to compare the World Bank data to other milestone data and then realized, hey, we could actually look at other milestone data more generally. And so in partnership with an app company, we actually gathered a big data set of kids' milestones. So reported by parents when kids start to walk, start to crawl, start to babble, and so forth, all the way from birth to age two or three or even four. And that data set provides a different window onto development, maybe an even more global and holistic window. And so we're using some of the same methods that we thought about in the Word Bank book to analyze those data sets. Do you have any initial findings on there? Well, what we're trying to figure out is the extent to which kids vary along the same dimension or whether their variation is multidimensional or multifactorial. So in the Piaget vision of development, everything kind of changed together. There was this one stage-like progression through development that affected kind of all of cognition. On the other hand, if you look at other theorists, more nativist theorists, they tend to say things like numbers are completely different from things like social cognition or reasoning about physical objects and so forth. Um, and then if you ask my grandma, she would say, well, kids either walk or they talk. You know, there's a, a compensatory relationship between different aspects of development. So people have different big global theories of how developmental change works. And it, it struck me that nobody had ever evaluated those theories. So we're trying to evaluate that from the highest level perspective. And the, the sense that we get from the data is that kids start out lower dimensional. Uh, they start out all varying either kind of faster or slower together. And then things like uh, motor competence versus language competence do actually split off and seem to vary with a little bit more independence. Some kids are faster at language and slower at motor milestones and vice versa. And so that differentiation hypothesis is what we're trying to test in this work. Wow, those sounds very interesting projects. So yeah, I guess we can wrap up here. It has been amazing talking to you on this Warband project. Is there like an online version of this book? Yeah, uh, anybody who's interested can go to wordbank-book.stanford.edu or just wordbank.stanford.edu. That's the original database. So the book is free online for anybody who's interested. And then the database itself is freely available and you can play with the visualizations or download the data. And if you come up with something fun, you can tell us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.